0: everyone you're tuned in for another episode of getting to the root of it with Venus Roots and before I get into this episode I want to share my appreciation and gratitude for all the support and love for the pilot episode I think we all live in a world that makes us question the value of our work and you know you all really validated my role as a storyteller and a facilitator of stories through this um so thank you deep gratitude and love for you all. And speaking of storytelling, our guest today is a brilliant thinker, writer, poet that is offering us so much for the new visions of what's possible through their work. And um, what's so exciting is that I share an intimate friendship and bond with them. But this sort of platform is giving me an opportunity to zoom out and sort of share how in awe I am of people that I'm just in community with. So welcome (laughs) Zaina.
1: Thanks for having me, Nikki.
0: Yay. So um, right now we're just in a pseudo home setup, studio situation. Um, And before this, we were talking a lot about Miami, climate crisis, gentrification, all of that. And Zaina, you are an abolitionist, daughter of the diaspora of Palestine and by way of Durham, North Carolina, you've ended up here in Miami. So tell me a little bit about your journey and who you are.
1: Yeah well first of all I just want to say thank you again for having me on your podcast. I'm so inspired by this kind of a project that I think is really rooted in generosity and rooted in wanting to have meaningful conversations that are shared with our folks um so thank you again thank um, you for the space um yeah i have been in miami almost two years now i drove my you know a u-haul down with my friend Subba, who's an amazing artist um and human being um uh in i think earlier mid-august yeah exactly two years ago and Since then, I think um, I've been both overwhelmed by the potential that I see in the community in Miami, just how passionate and talented and exuberant folks are here and how creative folks are here, how hungry people are for change. And also, to be real, I think I've been really taken aback by the challenges and the contradictions and the conditions of who run shit down here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know something I was thinking about the other day as I was trying to find a pharmacy <laughs> um, and how hard it was and how many um, plastic surgeons' offices and cell phone um, stories I passed on the way to, to a pharmacy. It really is sort of like how do we tell the story of Miami not as a playground for rich people. come and go as they please but you know as a community and as a society of of people who who live here who have lived here for a long time um who've been through shit while living here have seen a lot of violence while living here um so these are all the things that are kind of circulating in my head as I've gotten close with Fem Power of course and doing the book club with you Nikki which has been such an amazing project for me to be a part of and um, Dream Defenders being my main political home and um, among, you know, a lot of different projects that have
0: emerged over the last two years here. Wow. It's, you know, two years isn't that long of a time, but, and, and to build community and this sort of sense of family in in a weird, bizarre place like Miami is in such a short time speaks volumes of your ability to just build with people. And that's such a beautiful thing. Um, You know, you've called Miami a reactionary paradise. (laughs) And now I think it's like a, you know, it's just a phrase that we all just throw around. And, you know, when I hear that phrase, I know what it means to me. But, you know, so many people are going to listen, have, you know, different relationships to Miami because I'm from here. So when you say reactionary, reactionary paradise... You know, what What do you mean by that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love it. Hold me accountable. Because <laughs> I'd be saying a lot of shit. <laughs> um, yeah, let me back up my shit talking for a second. Um, so there's this film called Soy Cuba that I love. Um, it's a beautiful film. Um, uh, and I think some might call it a propaganda film. Um, I believe the filmmakers um, are Soviet filmmakers. though I would need to double check on that. But... Um, essentially, it tells the story of the Cuban Revolution, and the beginnings of that film sort of show pre-revolutionary Cuba, and it always makes me think of Miami, and it makes me think of Miami because you see this, um, this like fervent sensuality, right? This um, this sex appeal, but it's also marked by and informed by um, the ruling class, right? The ruling class is surrounded by these um, dark-skinned Caribbean folks who are serving them. Um, and so essentially they're having a great time and in paradise, um, while, you know, again, black and brown folks are essentially, um, at their whim, right? And so that's something that I've been really concerned about being in Miami that is home to so many, um, amazing diasporas of, um, Caribbean and Latin American people. Um, But I think the political conditions and the political program of Miami and the hyper development of Miami create the conditions by which instead of actually like working folks coming together and being like, Mm -hmm. we deserve X, Y, Z, it becomes this thing where the sort of novelty and the sex appeal and the beauty of Miami um, is, is just worn um, as this facade for, for rich people to have this recreational time and to have their condos for vacations while other folks are really struggling, mm-hmm. while other folks are paid really little, mm-hmm. um, while most folks are shut out of the political process. Um, and I think what's scary about Miami is that what happens is people who um, are not rich, who are really harmed by the systems in place, blame their suffering right on the other. You know, whether it be immigrants or black folks or et cetera, poor folks, um, this like specter of criminality. And I think Mm -hmm. those go hand in hand, right? When I say reactionary, I mean, it is the distrust of the people who you should be aligned with while aspiring to the people who are exploiting you. That's really what I'm talking about. I think Miami is really, unfortunately, um, suffers from that psychosis pretty intensely,
0: Yeah, I think that's so beautifully articulated, you know, given the horror that it is. Um, And I think it, you know, something that you said, you you are from Durham originally, which is a completely different political landscape and even kind of cultural landscape Um, that I'm curious to hear, you know, I think before we get into like interventions and visions for work here in Miami and South Florida, kind of how do you draw from all of your work organizing in Durham, you know, in the South, then to a place like Miami that's also in the South and does hold a lot of those angry characteristics politically, um, but then is also layered with this additional sort of um, invitation and openness of fascism, particularly because of its relation to Latin America, Latin American capital, and sort of how Miami really caters itself for the elite and ruling class of Latin America and the Caribbean?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I feel really lucky for the time I spent in North Carolina. I was born and raised there. Born in Raleigh. Went to school at Chapel Hill and then ended up living in Durham for four years. And, um, you know, I think for me, really one of the biggest lessons of all the different organizing campaigns I was part of in my time in North Carolina Really, the biggest lesson for me was know your history. Um, You know, it was really learning the history of um, you know the folks who had been organizing in North Carolina for such a long time. um, You know, from the Fusion Movement, where you had folks who were recently freed um, after the Civil War, folks who had been enslaved, right, who now all of a sudden are um, taking political office, right, building political power alongside a coalition of white folks. And then you know you have the first actual first successful political coup in US history where the um, councilmen in Wilmington um, are assassinated by reactionary forces who don't want black and white folks building coalition to build political power. I also, you know, grew up learning the history of communists who were assassinated in broad daylight in Greensboro. Um, and the friends and comrades of those folks, were some of the folks who, who politically trained me and who offered us you know, space and comfort and guidance when we were doing our organizing. And so I think those lessons, I name those lessons in particular because we have people who are the descendants who of extreme and extraordinary violence, who have made a choice not to feel bitter and hopeless, but who've made a choice instead to say, I'm going to do everything so that the generations who come um, after me know what I know and are able to continue the fight. Um, And so that's, I mean, that is the sentiment to me that like I've taken with me to Miami. And so it's really about like learning the history of struggle in Florida. Um, And it's wide and varied and complex. Learning the history of Miami as a black city, that Miami would not have been incorporated without black people though perhaps when people look at it today, they would not name it as a black city, but it is. And so I think um, emphasizing a historic context and a historic reckoning of place. Um, and also knowing that like nothing is um, politically impossible. You know, I was living and organizing in Durham in a state where I saw um, an already politically conservative state dramatically shift to the right. Uh, Because of a few rich people who essentially bought the legislature. So I'm, you know, I'm familiar with these waves, right? Uh, These right wing waves. And so I'm not afraid of them. And I also believe that um, through a real rooted and grounded uh, political program, through a real grounded mission, people can shift conditions. Mm -hmm. People can
0: change it. I really believe that. Mm Mm-hmm. Oof. Um, yeah, I think and something that all of your work always reminds me of and grounds me in is a sense of dignity, not just for myself, but like our people. And you realize that dignity is so important. It's so necessary to believe that you're worthy of something different. You know, and I think once you realize that it, you know, it, it makes, like you said, nothing is politically impossible. But it Makes what seems politically impossible quite possible and not just possible but absolutely necessary, kind of by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. And I think, with that, something that you've spoken about um, in one of your recent articles is you know, uh, this sort of intersection that South Florida is experiencing so, so uh, firsthand, this sort of intersection of the tools of the carceral state, confinement, incarceration. Um, in conjunction with the reality of climate crisis, which we can also treat as a, a system, you know. It is a system in place that's being very much so uh, kind of pushed forward by the elites that have put us in this place. Um, and you you called it a sort of eco-fascism um, that I think South Florida is particularly positioned to sort of be engaging with. And I want to hear a little bit more about what you mean by ecofascism, and what are some sort of forecasts, warnings that we should have in mind?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, ecofascism looks like um, Florida incarcerating a higher population, a higher um, segment of its population than every other country on earth, right? Ecofascism looks like having a private prison only to hold children migrant children um and so really what you're talking about is this spectacular i mean truly spectacular maintenance violent maintenance um as opposed to believing in a theory that there is enough to be shared Mm. so if you don't believe that there's enough to be shared and that all people have value and that you know other people's families are as entitled to clean air and water as your family is. Right. Um, Then you're going to create mechanisms to prevent people from accessing the resources that you yourself did not earn. And so this is, I think really important and we're, you know, use terms like decolonial abolitionist for me as someone who's like really loves thinking through popular education and like, how do we arm our folks with knowledge Sometimes it's really just about naming what we see and what we know. Um, so, you know, I was raised to believe that, like, other people aren't better than me. <laughs> and that I am not better than other people. You know, my parents are Muslim. We believe in this concept of an ummah, a community of believers. Um, there is this way in which Muslims believe that there is equity before God. Um, that no person's body is more sacred than another. Another. Um, And so you don't have to be Muslim, but I do think you have to believe that conceptually to reckon with um, the idea that we have to have borders, that we have to arm ourselves and protect our borders. There is no way to justify that without borrowing from settler colonialism and fascism. Because at its core, at its essence, what you were saying is, you deserve access to things while other people do not. Um, And so I think that's the sort of underlying logic that we have to
0: challenge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're drawing, you're you're lifting up so much, you know, and it's not just political landscape. It's the sort of like, you know, what we normalize in our culture. What are we, what must the elite feed us time and time, generation and generation for us to disempower ourselves for us to like you said earlier aspire to be the people who keep us in the bottom rather than build with our neighbor Mm -hmm. who is working just as hard as we are having the same struggle you know with that and also the work that you're doing with dream defenders i'm really curious to hear from you what are some of the most immediate sort of interventions and strategies that you know you sort of want to call into action for people in miami and south florida
1: yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think it's, we have to find a way to articulate our demands for ecological sustenance and environmental justice, understanding that the driving forces of climate destruction are resource extraction and criminalization. Um, which includes the police and military, right? We have to. We have to divest away from these violent systems of the petrochemical companies, the weapons industry, war, and policing, if we have any hope of actually building a society in which all of us can continue to live. Um, I think, unfortunately, right now, the sort of mainstream understanding of the environmental justice movement is... A particular right to this, like, question of, of pollution, um, particular to these questions of, um, you know, expansion and protection of nature, which I think is important. The land is sacred, right? We know that the land is sacred, we know that the land is stolen. These are important things. And also, I don't, if I think if we aren't able to connect that the same logic that says it's okay to mine and to drill profit is the same logic that says we can keep kids in prisons um i think we're going to be in trouble Mm -hmm. because i think those things absolutely have to go hand in hand and to make that as concrete as possible and what i mean by that is you'll go to some communities where the only jobs are working in a mine or working at a prison Mm -hmm. and in florida that is particularly true and so I think if we're talking about what would it mean to actually survive, what it mean to actually um, prevent the next mass extinction, we need to completely rethink what our economy looks like, how it functions, and how we relate to one another.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I think you brought up sort of mass extinction, and it reminds me of your upcoming book, A Theory of Birds. Um which I think, for so many of us in the fall, which we'll have the opportunity to read, it offers us a sort of apparatus for world making, right? And world making and longing of new language, as we're dealing with this sort of, you know, this sort of crisis of mass extinction and settler colonialism, and you treat them as these very inextricable moments and practices right um I would love to hear a little bit more about the process of not just writing this book and this collection but really just your thinking also
1: yeah totally um really it's the seed for this book was what became an obsession with the history of the dodo bird so I think it's safe to say that the dodo bird is kind of like our mascot for extinction right it's When people think of extinct species, it's one of the first that come to mind. Um, And yet it's sort of like, how much do we actually know about the dodo bird? Um, So in my research, and really what prompted the research is I I thought it was strange that in sort of the um, popular depictions of the dodo bird, it's always depicted as this goofy, kind of stupid, kind of bumbling bird that can't fly. Um, and there was one point in my life where I did think it was strange that, um, we think so poorly of this bird that's extinct. Um, it started to make me think of the way in which we talk about colonized people. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you go to Israel, it's not just that like, you know, Palestinians are colonized. It's also the ways in which people talk about Palestinians as inept and dirty and violent, right? Mm -hmm. Those things go hand in hand. I did some research on the dodo bird and I found that um, the island, the dodo bird was named the dodo bird by settlers who came to, the Portuguese who first came to the island of Mauritius. Um, And dodo is, um, you know, in Portuguese, it is pejorative, right? So from, from Jump Street, right, this bird is named by settlers in a pejorative way um, because it was ugly and, you know, didn't taste good. So fast forward to when the Dutch settled the island and they turned the dodo bird's island into a penal colony. So this is a prison colony, right? And it was after that, in less than 100 years, um, the bird is eradicated um, because of other invasive species and other things. Um, Then it was interesting, what happened is um, naturalists are fighting over whether the dodo bird even ever existed, Hmm. So there's this like question of the mythology of this bird that is only ever written about through the lens of the settlers. The settlers control all of the narrative of the dodo bird. At one point, fragments of the dodo bird are put on display, pieces of it, because there's never a full skeleton that's ever able to be found. Pieces of the bird are auctioned and put on display in museums around Europe. Um, for those of us who know our racial history, we know that that is not so different, right? From the ways in which um, the bodies of Africans become uh, this, uh, spectac- this spectacle, right? The site for, for settlers to, to ogle and to make fun of and to sexualize, et cetera. Obviously, it's a non-human species, but to me, that was enough to really be fascinated by the ways in which... First comes the settlers telling you who you are, writing the narrative of your, your being, your specieshood. Then comes this, the settlers eradicating you off the face of the planet and blaming you for it. Mm. And I, I think that, that logic to me was so fascinating and really felt like it, it mimicked and mirrored and paralleled so many stories I know of, of settler
0: domination. I mean, you know, just hearing you guide me through that um, in its own, like, analogy, all I could think is Palestine, Puerto Rico, Yeah. you know, and and in this given moment that's Mm -hmm. happening, you know, what's happening in the borderlands, um, how so often the question asked is, why didn't they stand up for themselves? Mm -hmm. Why didn't they fight? Same thing in regards to enslaved people from Mm -hmm. Africa. Same thing, you know, why didn't our ancestors fight harder? Why are we where we are now, is always the question. Um, and, and you know, in, in the honor of Frantz Fanon's birthday, it makes me think of some of his words, mm-hmm. where, you know, the so many things to, to draw from him, but how, you know, colonized people, how in that process of colonization, you know, we put ourselves in this sort of hole where we're questioning ourselves, and you know, so much Damage has been done to our psyche through that process of colonialism, that we're questioning our ability, um, rather than very f- few times will you hear people asking, why did they do this to us? Why is this an acceptable social practice? Why do we continue to accept forms of settler colonialism today? You know, Or rather, why do we not hold these people accountable um you know rather than this internalized sense of guilt and blame and shame and you know lack of worth and lack of ability and competency so you know the what's so beautiful about the analogy of the dodo bird is how it really represents kind of that the that process and like depopulating of people that happens through colonialism you know and thinking of palestine and puerto rico specifically right now and i i I mentioned those two not just because those are the only settler projects, we can mention so many, even where we are sitting right now, but because you are of the Palestinian diaspora and because I'm from the Puerto Rican diaspora, um, it makes me think of another point you mentioned around if we're not able to identify that the people responsible for this climate crisis are also the people who are not just responsible but are invested in putting our people in cages. Um proof of that is the tear gas canisters being used mm-hmm. against the people of Puerto Rico this week who have been, you know, manifesting themselves in a way that folks have really never seen before this past week. Uh at this point we're in day 8 um and manifestations will continue. Of course the police has has always, served its role in brutalizing the people, right? Um, and you know, I was reading how the tear gas canisters are made by Safariland, mm-hmm. you know, by also the bo- you know board president of the Whitney Museum, right? And those are also the same tear canisters, tear gas canisters used in Ferguson in Palestine, yeah. And for some reason or no- or another, which we have some ideas around somehow we're still unable to sometimes see our connections. Mm -hmm. To sometimes understand, especially in a place like South Florida, what does Palestinian solidarity have to do with me? Mm -hmm. What does Puerto Rican uprising have to do with me? I'm not Puerto Rican, I'm not Palestinian. Um, Without realizing how interconnected all of our people are, that sort of in that vein, what are some strategies for to disrupt that to disrupt that sort of hegemonic individualistic culture that we're fed for for so long?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I think you know, the there is so much rich and complex discussion to be had. I think the short answer that's you know easy while I'm just sitting here with you in this beautiful room is to say. Um, organizing and shifting culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think how, what that looks like, that's that's the task before us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one is, you know, first and foremost, a real understanding of the conditions that we're alive in mm. and what are the conditions that make it so that people are so... Divided and misinformed and miseducated? You know, what are the conditions that make it difficult for us to see ourselves in one another? These are really important questions. Um, In my experience, I think how people overcome that is through kinship making. Mm -hmm. Number, you know, first and foremost, friendship, right? I believe in this podcast project as an educational tool but I believe in you Nikki more than more than that and so I think for me when I'm talking to people and that's the question when did you if you're a non-Palestinian person when did you become alive to the concept of solidarity you know few of them have said well I read this really incredible theoretical text Mm -hmm. (laughs) what they'll say is I saw my Palestinian neighbor um, or friend or community member in the streets with me So, you know, in Mm -hmm. Ferguson, hearing from my Palestinian, you know, sisters and brothers where they talk about how seeing a child, someone's child dead in the street, left dead in the street for four hours on a hot day and how that changed their life, Mm -hmm. how that made them want to do Palestinian solidarity differently. And they've never looked back. Um, I think that's the story of struggle we don't get to talk about because the story of struggle becomes how can I make it as bite-sized and clean and Mm -hmm. um you know for my workshop you know what I mean but it's like no struggle is really fucking messy and really fucking beautiful and more messy and beautiful than we're ever able to explain it as so my hope is that when we create the spaces sometimes whether or not we want to right sometimes in the wake of crisis Mm -hmm. but if we create spaces where people can be fighting alongside one another people who come from different places who have different histories and they are able to really see one another um and sometimes that's in the streets and sometimes that's in a classroom and sometimes that's um when your canvas is by someone else's canvas right I think those can look different ways but I do think that we have to be always committed to this idea of kin making kinship making um and struggle and struggling alongside one another
0: oof first of all oof i'm saying you know i'm just like looking at the trees right now because you know it's it's a lot to process and it's like you said it's not it's those points that don't make the workshop or don't make the podcast right it's Um, it's the intimacy that yeah. really moves people. It's the kinship and the relationships. And, you know, I think when you go to Cuba, that's yeah. one of the first things that yeah. just kind of just slaps you in the face. Yeah, You know, we've both been to Cuba, and I think in our immediate reflection, you know, aside from the political, it's how in community, how in obvious community people are with one another. Yeah. And how when you are in a place like America, the empire so often what you hear from people is how longing for community they are it's true yeah you know i don't know how many spaces i think you know specifically book club usually it's like you know almost every person in their introduction always points to their need and their desire to just have a community right you know and something that you also speak about is You know, you've produced a number of essays and poems and articles from really just so many ranging topics. But in every single piece, you're very intentional about identifying yourself as a movement worker. Mm -hmm. And we know that we live in uh, an economy that is obsessed with uh, making workers feel completely disconnected from that identity Mm -hmm. for very obvious reasons why do you feel you know why are you so intentional about identifying yourself as a worker and why is that so urgent
1: first of all I love that question I love that question no one has ever asked me that um so that's it made me so happy um to read that and to hear it now um because it also made me want to be like why do I call myself (laughs) but um There's no way for me to answer that question without talking about ideology, Mm. right? Um, Because I call myself a worker because I, um, through the experience of my life and from what I've seen and from what I've read, um, have decided to align myself and identify myself within within Marxism, um, and within Marxist thought. And, you know, we're alive right now in a time where, um, and it's funny, right? Because the communist manifesto starts with the specter is haunting Europe. (laughs) So it's funny that in 2019, right, there's still this specter of communism that's being referenced. Um, there's still this, this boogeyman of communism, mm-hmm. right, that Trump is, is calling out. Ilhan Omar, maybe she's a communist, right? Lindsey Graham, maybe they're communists. So it's interesting that this specter is still, is still, haunting, still haunting the U.S. Um, so whenever people deride and, and degrade and diminish communists, Um, it's typically what they'll say is, it has never worked. There is no communist country that has worked. It will destroy our country. It will destroy our country. And I think what I always want to ask is, what are the questions that you're asking? right? What are the questions that a capitalist asks and what are the questions that Marx asks? So I think what a capitalist asks is, how can I make the most and own the most stuff right i don't think that's even a provocative or a controversial um, essential point what marx is asking marx is asking emancipatory questions marx is not asking how can i own the most marx is asking how do workers live in a free society how do workers liberate themselves from the sources that are that are oppressing and repressing us um and so those are questions that interest me those are the questions that i feel are more urgent to me than how do i own a piece of the pie Mm. um and and one of the reasons why i think that that those questions intrigue me is they are always rooted in this idea marx never says it will be one person who will lead us right to victory. Mm -hmm. Marx is always interested in workers who have analyzed a very particular history and moment they're alive in, determining the best ways to get rid of the forces of control so that they can sort of um, wield their own destiny, right? Um, A capitalist wants you, you know, Ayn Rand, we all had to read her in high school, right? Mm -hmm. She wants you to think you are just so special. And that if you are brilliant enough, right, you will ascend. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like, I don't want to exist alone. I don't want to be um, just an individual, you know, this this atom particle. I've always wanted to be a part of an us and a we. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I use that term worker. It's not just because I'm like getting a check and I don't own shit. That's not really what I mean. <laughs> really what I mean is... I wanna be a part of the people who make history, mm-hmm. the makers. I wanna be a part of, you know, I wanna see myself as tethered indefinitely to people I don't know who live on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. I don't see myself as competing with them, right? I see myself as belonging to them, to, to this us and to this we. And that's what I mean when I say worker. Um, and that's that form of wanting to be a part of belonging and also be a part of a project that is unfinished. Um, that's really important to me too. Um, and the last thing I'll say is I was reading this um, essay that I love by Stuart Hall, who's a Jamaican Marxist and cultural theorist called um, For Marxism Without Guarantees. Yeah. Um, and I've been thinking about this a lot, so I really want to say this, is I think people who identify as Marxists or communists are always challenged by, um, without nuance, right? We're always supposed to have the perfect answers and the perfect responses. And if we got rid of capitalism tomorrow, what would your state look like? And what would your economy look like? And what form of currency would you use, et cetera, right? And, you know, what Stuart Hall is talking about is that Marx is not Jesus, right? He didn't write some sort of like biblical screed. He's talking about how do we ask... The right questions to understand who we are and the world we live in. How do we see ourselves as a pro- as a part of an unfinished project? How do we believe that it's better? It is better to be a part of an unfinished project that doesn't have all the answers than to accept that what we have, this system of violence and extraction and brutality, is the best that we can do.
0: Mm, that. Mm-hmm.
1: How do we say we refuse? We will always refuse to accept that as the best that we can do, that we can actually come up, some collectively come up with something better. Um, so yeah, that's why I call myself worker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think you know it's a it is a beautiful longing to prefer uh, the acknowledgement of potentially not seeing your your visions materialize in your lifetime. Right. It requires not just radical hope, but it requires an investment in the future mm-hmm. that does not include you. And that is so counter to a capitalist framework. That is so individual and is so about my immediate gain. But, you know, typically what Marxists are saying and communists and socialists are Fighting for is I rather commit to a struggle for the rest of my life because it will create the foundation and will allow conditions of the future to be better at its most simple chorus belief. And what's you know, what sometimes is so difficult is when you're having these conversations, like you said, people want the perfect answer, people are so trained specifically in the United States. To have such a knee jerk reaction. How can I um, delegitimize? How can I uh, disqualify this sort of thinking and this sort of uh, desire? You know, that it's really beautiful to just kind of hear you say in a very honest and real way, because I think that's how so many of us feel. It's like, actually, I don't have to be equipped to respond to every nuance of that. Of that question, or of this sort of like envisioning, but what we should be equipped to do is have very critical analysis of what are our con- current conditions, mm-hmm. who is it serving, and who, and at the expense of who, right? And then you know, sort of plant this sort of seeds for this new world. But I'm really, I'm really grateful that you you were able to mention kind of like the the difficulty when you sometimes express you know, any radical leftist ideology, um, particularly. I mean, especially in Miami, you know. (laughs) Not just United United States, but definitely Miami. And what's difficult is that so many people in Miami don't see themselves as victims of this sort of fascist propaganda, fascist culture um, that has just been fed down our throats while also being strangled. Um, and we've seen that in the context of what's happening in Venezuela, mm-hmm. of course. Anytime you bring up Cuba, right? And I think you know, even now with Puerto Rico, it's it's yeah. you know, it, it's very upsetting for me to not hear an analysis that reckons with the fact that Puerto Rico is in the place that it's in because of colonial and imperial power, mm-hmm. economically, socially, right. culturally. It's not. You know, and it brings us back to that initial point. It's not this, like, lack of competency. And, right. Uh, totally. You know, it's this set of, like, disposable people that just don't know how to govern themselves. They just don't know what to do with their resources. Yeah. And the only possible capable force, of course, has to be the United States or a, you know, sort of imperial power. So much of your work encompasses all of these forms of intervention from your mass work with dreams offenders all of your writing both political and also offering us kind of a creative set of new language new potential possibilities that you know we've meant, we've talked about how so often it feels like struggle is broken into a binary mm-hmm. you know and and so often we're taught Either you are doing the quote unquote real work and you are doing the mass work and you are organizing or you're this like artist doing frivolous tasks that don't right. free us. And what I absolutely love about not just who you are but the work that you offer us is that it turns all of that on its head and it proves otherwise time and time again. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that sort of binary as a limitation for our movement kind of how you've navigated those sort of quote-unquote contradictions which I don't think are contradictions
1: yeah that's a really good question I think it's another thing that we're really up against um you know especially in like the age of the internet and the age of uh more advanced digital visibility and and more platforms to to share work but also more platforms to be you know capitalized on exploited um that we are, you know, um, interacting with and, and, building our lives around. Um, I think to go back to sort of like in North Carolina, something I'm really grateful for is, um, you know, I did have a lot of friends who, who were artists and some who were, you know, working artists, but I also had a lot of friends who just loved art, you know, and who made art, who, you know, went to art museums, just for the love of art. And that was a part of their life, just as political work was a part of their life. And I think for me, something I've always really tried to resist is this professionalization of everything. Mm -hmm. This idea that, um, oh, only the artists know about art. Only the organizers know about politics. You know, I mean, it's just one, it's inaccurate, right? All of us are leading these multifaceted, complex lives. All of us have realms of expertise in our own experience all of us have gifts and thoughts and feelings and desires so if you you know are a living sentient being in the world I believe you have a stake in caring about art and a stake in caring about politics Mm -hmm. (laughs) because these you know this visual content um and not just visual content, but really just the cultural content, right? And then, and, and political forces mediate our lives. So choosing whether or not to participate is one thing, but thinking that it doesn't affect you or implicate you or that you have no stake in it or that you have nothing to say about it is not true. Um, so, you know, what does that mean in terms of how can we challenge that? Um, I think I'm really inspired by groups like decolonize this place. I'm inspired uh, by them for quite a few reasons, but I think one of uh, recently where they have really taken a position to go after Warren Canders, who you referenced earlier as the CEO of Safariland, um, who's on the board uh, at the Whitney, is I think what they've done is create a political crisis that demonstrates just how silly it is to make these distinctions between artists and activists and you know, working people of course we we are all implicated in, in these systems of violence and profit. Of course we are. Mm-hmm. Of course our lives are mediated by by the pigs and, and the cells, um, whether or not you have a paintbrush in your hand, right? Um, and so I think groups like that, um, I think, are doing a really good job of creating models for us to adapt in our own communities. Um, in a place like Miami, you... Uh, talked a little bit. We were talking earlier about sort of the hyperdevelopment of Miami, especially the Little Haiti area. One thing that's a really key component of that hyperdevelopment is art washing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for folks who aren't familiar with that term, that's a term that I learned from others. That's essentially using art to sort of make discreet um, or to uh, dilute the violence of dispossession that comes with um, private development. So it's. We're supposed to celebrate and be so thrilled when art galleries and huge art developments come to our towns because art is supposed to, supposedly innocent. Um, when that's never been true, mm-hmm. um, so I think those of us who are invested in um, in power, political power, and, and political organizing projects, we also cannot ignore the ways in which these forces that we're up against, whether it be the forces of criminalization. Um, hand in hand with the forces of development are using art as a weapon. So if we don't also use art as a weapon, you know, we (laughs) we're going to be forced out of the narrative and that's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think I've been really, also I have friends in North Carolina. um, I saw that they recently posted um, a statement there with a group called art ain't innocent. Mm -hmm. um, A recent collective that they formed and they put out a statement because of artists who put their art in the new police station police headquarters in durham right and so i think these forms of collaborating with with the state and violent apparatuses of the state there's a long history there and so it's up to us to to help our people identify that identify those intersections and for us to say no and to come up with our own cultural narrative that can compete um and actually bring people into struggle
0: yeah in the midst of all the ways in which the Black Panther Party is Mm -hmm. romanticized, um, one of the key things that I feel we can always refer back to is the sort of use of art, Mm -hmm. use of the images that you consume, the messages that you internalize, um, as this sort of means of actually politicizing people, radicalizing people, shifting their sense of worth that we've talked so much about. Um, so, you know, I'm always so grateful for the work you do. Um, it's it's unfortunate how even within, you know, progressive or radical spaces, we're still, you know, victims of this sort of sense of binary and us and them, you know, and, and we're always trying to decolonize our spaces and be more mindful of hey, these are actually not separate things. These are collaborating and uh, and coexisting and having very real material effects in our lives. So um, I feel like we can stay talking the entire day. (laughs) (laughs) And I do want to give you an opportunity. You have a lot of exciting things coming up and a lot of, aside from the book, uh, you are always just plugged into such spaces because of how needed you are in them. Um, that I'm curious is there something that you want particularly not just Miami people or South Florida people to be plugged into but just kind of like some final words and some closing insights yeah
1: um, I think one last thing I want to say in terms of like that last question of how do we challenge binaries is I think I want us to all really like sit with the question of who do we see as capable of driving and informing transformational change.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, You know, I know you also taught at some poetry classes at the, um, at Dade prison. I think from there it was, you know, at that prison that I met probably some of the most talented poets I've ever met in my life, Um, which shouldn't be shocking, but because we live you know, again, in a society that wants us to dismiss and diminish the capacities of marginalized people. um, I think going through that experience really reminded me of the ways in which we can, we should never take for granted just how gifted uh, working people are and how much there is to be said. And how can we, as people who, who care about other people, create vehicles for For people to share what needs to be shared and to say what needs to be said um, at all times as loudly as possible. Um, And so I'd say that that's a real guiding principle for my work. And to that effect, I think, you know, groups that I really look to um, for a lot of political guidance, groups that I hope that people who have the means will continue to support financially. I'm deeply inspired by the work of Cooperation Jackson, Mm -hmm. Jackson, Mississippi. I'm deeply inspired by the work of the Red Nation, um, organizing indigenous folks out of uh, New Mexico, um, what we call New Mexico, right, Um, on on stolen indigenous land. Um, I love the Dream Defenders. I love Fem Power. I hope folks will continue to support those projects. They're so urgently needed in Florida. Um, And, yeah, the book is coming out on University of Arkansas Press (laughs) if you want to read it
0: if you want to read it (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much Zaina this has been beautiful and just to share space with you in such intimate and urgent ways feels like a gift thanks Nikki love you love (laughs) (laughs) you Thanks, you all for tuning in have a good one